September 4th, 2011. Lecture discussion, and uh, this is number intermission review uh, two. Uh, as a trained professional, as I alluded in the announcements, uh, I knew the Labor Day holiday was going to be brutal, and so uh, this was a good time to pick up some subjects that uh, I get a lot of uh, requests for, and this is two of them, by the way, uh, today. And for those of you who were absent uh, last Sunday, um, uh, we uh, you were at the state fair, or you had one final fishing trip, or you rested up for duck hunting. When does duck hunting start, Bill? Did it start already? First? Okay. So, anyway, you're putting on your snow tires. That's a good idea. It's going to get bad here this year, I predict. Anyway, we here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, we went through intermission review number one last week. And that's where I gave away all the answers for the upcoming semester exam, which, as you know, happens here occasionally. And everyone knows your test scores determine your parking place and uh, what order you get in the buffet line. And they're non-transferable, in case you were thinking, oh, you're bringing me my table. Thank you. Oh, I have to put my medicine on the table. Thank you, Super Dave. Anyway, uh, your, uh, your parking place and your order in the buffet are non-transferable, so rid yourself of any ideas of selling or trading either for profit. That is, a, that is a Section 8, Appendix 4 of your membership agreement. And non-members are excluded, uh, but uh, subject to all penalties. Uh, anyway, as I say this a little bit, because 2% of everybody who listens to me by the Internet think that we really do um, have tests and award and parking places and assigned seating and things, and that they do. They believe me, and that's cool. That adds to our reputation. They spread it around. And as you know, one of my off-stated intentions here is to construct parking place signs. I've always wanted to do it. You know, I just put a few parking place signs out there in nice uh, areas where everyone that drives by could see them, and uh, I'd have the ones the furthest away say, uh, non-tithers park here. And I put the ones by the door that said largest tithers. I think that would be eventually funny. It would take a while. I wanted ones that said Christmas only attender and worst singer. And you can park there your own best dressed visitor. You, but I really, what I really wanted to do, and I hate to even say this because uh, I know, like I said, there's thousands of people now that listen to me. Bless their hearts. I, I wanted to have signs that said saved and unsaved. I really have always wanted to do it. Uh, uh, you can't stop me. And, and then I just wanted to watch the two reactions. That's what I wanted to do. Of all, again, someday you're going to show up. It's going to happen. Because there's two reactions. Actually, there's three. I know there's a third reaction. There's sarcasm. I always know that. But there's the two that I think about. The horrified reaction, which would be funny. But the more funny, of course, would be the ones who thought that this was a good idea. And... Uh, and I thought that would be much fun, deciding which reaction is more entertaining. And see how many other churches copy the concept. And then read the letters to the editor. Do you know there's a church out there that has parking places assigned for... Yeah, that would be cool. Anyway, 
enough of that. Before we begin the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, which is today's intermission and next Sunday's as well, I, I want to revisit the subject of the wrath of God or the anger of God from last Sunday. Um, Sharon from Texas uh, wrote in and wanted to know why I held the position that Nadab and Abihu, or Abihu the sons of Aaron, um, who were devoured by fire in Leviticus uh, uh, 10, uh, 1 through 11. They were devoured by fi- fire, if you remember the story, and it's in your bulletin. We put it in there so that you could read it. If you don't have a bulletin, raise your hand, and John will get you one. John runs fast, and that way you can read it during the sermon and do the... Uh, do the crossword puzzle on the back, or word puzzle, sorry. It's perfectly uh, fine to do that during the lecture. But anyway, Nadab and Abihu who um, offered profane fire, fire that was not taken from the brazen altar. And these two sons, likely drinking beforehand um, and during their first ceremony, because this is the beginning of the priestly ministry, this is their first sacrificial ceremony, and I want you to think of yourself, uh, how long, what is this required? How does this process work? This is their first day on the job, if you will. They have their new uniforms. And these two sons were the sons of the high priest, and they died on the first day. And I said that they were nonetheless saved men, even though they had put profane fire up there. And Sharon from Texas wanted to know why I have that position. And it's an excellent question, as usual, from Sharon in Texas. She asks wonderful questions often. And answering it affords me the opportunity to build upon last week's response to Chris and Karen from Missouri regarding the wrath of God, because Chris was concerned about the wrath of God. This is a place very often that is used by the unscholared or the unlearned or the illiterate biblically to say that God is arbitrary, capricious, uh, he throws fits, he's, he's malicious, he's vicious, because they have no understanding of what's going on in Leviticus 10 and they do not think through Scripture at all. And of course you would expect that. They don't have the mind that is renewed by the Holy Spirit to understand Scripture. That is just how it is. It is a blindness that we can't fix. So anyway, to repeat, why do I believe that these two apprentice priests, if you will, first day on the job, who, who got into the wind, I, I think that's obvious uh, as you read the, uh, the text, each took his censer, put the wrong fire in it, on it, sorry, profane fire, put incense on it, offered this profane fire before the Lord, and were slain before all of Israel. All of Israel saw them die instantly. Why do I believe these two men, the sons of Aaron, were nonetheless saved men? And that's an excellent question. And the way you respond to that is you ask the obvious questions. What's the first obvious question? You can do this. First obvious question is, what's the definition? God's definition of profane fire. Remember from last week how we always begin with God's definition. Why is it profane? What's the difference between this fire and the real fire? This is the bad fire, obviously. What's the difference between the bad fire and the good fire? What does the fire from the brazen altar, what does it symbolize? Here's a better question. Who does it symbolize? Now, the next obvious question, is God loving? Is God merciful? Is he long-suffering? Just answer that for you. Is he long-suffering for you? Answer yes. 
Same for me. Is he patient? Is he slow to anger? Bill's Nineveh uh, uh, discussion during the offering demonstrates this tremendous patience that God has. Canaanites, Egyptians, us. Is he patient? Is he slow to anger? Is he good? Is God good? The answer is yes, he is good. He is loving. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. He is patient. Something happened here that required that he intervene. How is it that this is love? Who is it love for? He is loving somebody while Nadab and Abihu are being consumed by fire. Who is he loving? What's that? Well, I'm going to tell you who he's loving. He's loving Nadab and Abihu. Well, you'd say, well, he just blew them up. How is it that he is loving them? Who else is he loving that's there? All of Israel is there. The witness is this. And he is loving them. How is it that he is loving them? Because he is stopping something, isn't he? He is intervening. Okay, I'm going to give you an inside of time hypothetical, which isn't really a good question because of that. Uh, what would have been the consequences if God does not do what he did? That's the correct question that you ask when you read these kinds of things. Not how, why, how could he do such a thing? What is that kind of question? That, yeah, ignorant is exactly right. It's also blasphemous. You don't ask, how could God be like this? What are you doing? You're, trying, you're putting yourself at his level or above him by saying that you wouldn't do such a thing. You wouldn't have done that. Well, God did something awful. You put sin in God, evil in God, called him evil, and said that you have the right to judge him, don't you? All of that is what? Disrespectful at best, evil at worst. So again, this inside of time hypothetical, which is a badly worded question because it's inside of time and it's a hypothetical. What's the problem with that? Why do I, I say that? God is outside of time and God is omniscient. But nonetheless, let me give it to you again. What would have been the consequences if God does not do what he did? Obviously, God must, must act as he did. Obviously, he is protecting the doctrine of salvation uh, through the blood of Christ. That's what he's doing. That profane fire is in contrast to the holy fire. The holy fire is the doctrine of salvation through the blood of Christ. No other means is possible. Let me say it another way. No other means is acceptable for salvation, which means nothing else is possible for salvation except through the blood of Christ. No other garment can be worn, no other sacrifice, no one comes to the Father except through the Son. If anyone preaches any other gospel, if an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel, if anyone perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ, Galatians 1, 6 through 10, let them be accursed. No, I one way. Adab and Abihu in front of all of Israel did what? They put another salvation system on the altar, didn't they? Now, why did they do that? You see, there is no universalism. This gets me in trouble all the time. I get, I, I get, I get criticized for this. You are so intolerant, they tell me. Am I intolerant? Yeah, I am. Why am I intolerant? 
as I read the book. There is no universalism. There is not many paths to God. There are not lots of trails up the mountain. There is only one. Only the sweet savor of the blood sacrifice of Jesus, of Jesus Christ is acceptable, is the one that he will allow. And Nadab and Abihu before all of Israel. Okay? Let's put that on the board. Ugh. For all of Israel, here is where all means all. That's going to come up in a minute. Before all of Israel, what are they? They're anointed priests. When did they get anointed? Well, today is the first day on the job. They're the sons of the high priest Aaron. They go into the tabernacle. This is the beginning of their priestly ministry. And how long does these offerings that they did, read Leviticus 9, how many hours does it take? How many blood sacrifices do they have to do? How hard a job is this? How long are they doing it for? See, then ask the obvious question. All of those sacrifices, by the way, are what? They are types, they are pictures, they are portraits, they are symbols of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. All of them are. They're doing them all. How'd they do? They got through everything. After hours of offerings, hard, hard, exhausting work. Then the fire of the Lord, the Shekinah glory appears and consumed the burnt offering and the fat of the altar, accepting the sacrifice, accepting what they had done. And all of Israel shouted and fell on their faces. Now, who's all of Israel? I'm going to make a list. Moses? Yep. Aaron? Yep. Nadab? Abai who? They're two brothers? Everybody. All means all. All of Israel shouted when they saw the Shekinah glory, accept the sacrifice, the final act of the day, accept the sacrifice, pow! Boom! They all shouted, fell on their faces in great fear and trembling. Everybody did, including Nadab and Abihu. The sacrifice was what? Accepted. Now, what happens next? After all of that, after the shouting, the falling on your faces, the Shekinah glory, the fire from God that consumed it, then Nadab and Abihu, who participated in all day long, and again, they got into the uh, got into the wine. How do I know that? Well, I can read it here. Um, whoops, maybe not in here. Eight and nine it didn't make it into the into the bulletin. Sorry, Leviticus ten. Well, let me read it. Why not? Why not? Since we're having fun, huh? What did we do today at church? What we always do, Pinky? We went through Leviticus. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, 10.8, Do not drink wine or a intoxicating drink, you nor your sons, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting. Why would God say that to them? Unless somebody had been drinking wine. Who is the obvious wine drinkers here? Pretty obvious, I think, that it's Nadab and Abihu. So after the Shekinah glory, after 
the burnt offering is, is accepted by God in that powerful way, Nadab and Abihu take fire from some other source, and we don't know what other source they got it from. We don't know. And they put it in their censer, and they put incense on it, and they offer it up. What's the obvious question? Besides, what were they thinking? And many commentators, uh, many commentators believe that Nadab and Abihu did this completely on their own. That they just had some kind of self-aggrandizement ego trip. They just decided to show off or something. That's the most common view. I don't believe that fits the, uh, the context, in my opinion, can, refutes that conclusion. And this is what Sharon is asking me. Why do I think this? Uh, well, let's just go over it really fast. This is a time of great awe and fear and trembling. The Shekinah glory is present overhead. All the people shout and fall on their faces. Everybody does that. And I don't believe that Nadab and Abihu decided to do something on their own. Because ask the, again, the next obvious question. How long did they do this? How long have they been doing this? What are they doing? I'm going to I'm going to put you in their position. I'm going to get you anointed, get you a robe, and tell you, by the way, if you screw up, you're dead. Okay, I won't tell you that part because you won't make it. I'm going to get you anointed, get you a robe, and I'm going to send you out there to do the beginning, the sacrificial system with everybody watching you. Have you ever done it before? Has anybody ever done it before? Had Nadab and Abihu ever done it before? Was there a manual? Was there classes? Here's how you cut the ox. Here's how you put the grain offering on. Here's how you do this. Was there any kind of training? OSHA come by. How did they know what to do? They'd never done it before. Obviously, they've got into the wine. So they decided that whatever they're doing, they could do a little bit tipsy. A long, hard, brutal day. And they do fine all the way to the end. And then after the fire, somehow, both of these guys together go get the wrong fire, put it on the censer, and stick it up there. I don't believe they decided to do that on their own. I think they continued to do as they had done all day long. What was that? They followed orders. They were following orders. What's the obvious question? Yeah, who's given the orders? Very good. Somebody in charge here. Who's in charge? There's two guys in charge, actually. Who are they? Moses is in charge. Oops, my pen didn't work right there. If this one works, dear, I'm going to give you the bad one so that I don't keep picking it up. Okay. Moses is in charge. I'll prove that to you in a minute. And Aaron is in charge. I'll prove that to you in a minute. This is a very complex process. 
Let's just read it really fast. I'll just read 9.1. It came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons. Who's that? Nadab and Abihu who are in there. There's four sons, right? Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering. What's he doing? Telling them what to do. Then 9.5. Go up to 9.5. So they brought that, they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle. Who's commanding? Moses, 9.6. Then Moses said, who's given the directions? Moses, 9.7, 9.10. Moses is the one who is telling everybody there what to do and what to say and how to do it. How come he's doing that? He's the only one that knows what to do. And they are following orders. They don't know what to do. And also, Aaron was in charge as well. By the way, did you know two mistakes were made? Not just Nadab and Abihu. The other two sons made a mistake too. What's the obvious question? How come they didn't die? What's the difference? That's not fair, right? God's not fair? Is that what you're thinking? What's that? Yeah, that's illiteracy, blasphemy, disrespect, judgment, elevating yourself. All bad. Is God fair? God good? Yes, He is. It's our job to figure out how and not to think otherwise as a knee-jerk reaction. But again, it's two mistakes made that day. Read Leviticus 10, 16 through 20. How come the other sons didn't die? So what is the most likely, I submit, that Moses told them to present the censers? Did he tell them to get the wrong fire? No. What did they probably do? They're stumbling around anyway. It's been a long day. They drank a little bit. They grabbed the wrong fire. They're tired. They're stunned. And Nadab and Abihu put in fire not from the altar. What's the next obvious question? Why didn't Moses stop them? Why didn't Aram stop them? They're in charge. And as a result, physical death. Notice how I said that. Physical death comes. What am I telling you? I'm telling you there is a difference. Just because somebody dies in the Bible, you cannot immediately make the assumption that that physical death has led to what? Spiritual death. Physical death is used as a symbol for the second death, but it is not necessarily the same as. So always ask yourself, is this physical death or is this spiritual death or is this both when you read a story like this? Okay? Because they took those censers and they had the wrong fire, physical death results. And by the way, who's watching? All of Israel. Who's that? That's the other sons, the other priests, that's Moses, that's Aaron, that's all the children of Israel have now learned something. What is it that they've learned? Only one way is to be saved. And then they're told, Aaron is told, the other, the other sons are told, none of the family of Aaron is allowed to mourn. None of them. None of them are allowed to despair in any way. No sadness, no despair. Don't 
don't throw ashes, don't, uh, don't uncover your head, don't tear your clothes, don't do any of that. Why? Because all of Israel is watching you. You cannot mourn. If you mourn, what have you just done? Yeah, you have, you have said that God has done something wrong. So they're not allowed to mourn. Why aren't you allowed to mourn death? Because you're supposed to know what happens after physical death. You're supposed to believe it. You're supposed to be at peace with it. You know that that physical death is not the end. You know that Nadab and Abihu did not cease to exist there. Aaron's supposed to know. The brother's supposed to know. Moses' supposed to know. If anybody knows that, it has to be the priests, the religious leaders. Don't mourn. Don't despair. Don't tear your clothes. Don't uncover your heads. What's on their heads? Priestly garments, right? Okay, all of those are pieces. These people who could not mourn, all of them had the anointing order. Oh, I'm sorry, anointing oil on them. They all had been anointed. Who else had been anointed, by the way? Nadab and Abihu. What's anointing mean? Why were they sprinkled with the anointing oil? What does that symbolize? And finally, notice from the text. This is the last little piece here that you put together in all of this. Aaron was at peace, P-E-A-C-E. He just watched his two sons die, probably at what? Somebody ordered them to do it. Who do you think is likely the one that ordered them to do it? 50-50 chance it's Aaron. Whose mistake is it? But Aaron was at peace. He understood why, and he understood what happened. He understood the eternity of it. He understood the totality of it. He understood why God was good. He understood that that whole nation of Israel had to be protected. He understood the severity of it. He understood the picture of Christ. Before all the people, God must be glorified, regarded as holy. Once all of that information I just gave you is gathered up and considered, I believe the only conclusion that can be reached is that this is physical death and not spiritual death for Nadab and Abihu. The only thing that can give Aaron peace, the only thing that can keep him going, the only peace that passes understanding is the one that knows that his sons were saved. And God does talk to him, doesn't he? See that? Then the Lord spoke to Aaron. God speaks to Aaron. What did Aaron ask him? Where are my sons? Aaron's at peace. And remember, the burnt offering and the blood sacrifice and their sin offering, all of that had been accepted just prior. And they had been anointed. Moses was in authority. Aaron's at peace. There's no mourning allowed. And this is where you see John 11:33, because in every Old Testament story, there's a what? There's a New Testament complement. What is the New Testament complement? It's John 11:33. Okay? What's that? 
How do I get from Leviticus 10 to John 11? What's John 11? That is the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus Christ does something. God in the flesh does something. He groans there. Groans twice. <coughs> Excuse me. Two groans. Why does he groan? And they're incredible groans. They're just from the depth of him. This is from the depth of God. He groans. Why does he groan there at the resurrection of Lazarus? Is he worried about Lazarus? No, he's going to resurrect Lazarus. He knows exactly that Lazarus is okay. Lazarus is saved. He's got a whole graveyard, by the way, of people that aren't saved. In fact, you can make the case the only one that is saved in that whole graveyard is Lazarus. That ain't good news. But why is he really groaning? Because he'd run into somebody. Who'd he run into? Of course, he's omniscient God, inside of time, hypothetical question. I hope you get all that. Who is in front of him? Professional mourners. The Jews are there. You hire people at all funerals. Did I spell professional right? I should learn how to spell it because why? I, I am a professional. They had, prof they had professional mourners. Okay? What were their job? Their job was to go to all the funerals and weep and wail as if what? There is no hope after death. That's their job. You pay them a lot of money and they were really good at it. And they would cry and wail and throw themselves on the ground. And Jesus Christ comes to see them. And this groan comes out of God. You don't mourn. What do you have instead? Peace. Because you know... His physical death. So there is your complement to Leviticus 10, 1 through 20. It's John 11, 25 through 44. And I hope that helps you, Sharon and Chris in uh, Missouri. I can't go any further because I've already used up all the time that I know I haven't. Uh, we still have a couple hours to go. I'm kidding about that. Please don't leave. But I used up all the time I can on that subject today because we're going to the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Uh, and, that, and here we go. Well, let's get myself refortified. Believe it or not, I did something out of, I drank a caffeine-free Diet Coke the other day, which is Lori's. There's great risk to that. She counts them, but I did. I got one because I told myself I have to start cutting down on the caffeine. I don't know why I do that, but actually I'm a little worried about it. So if you see next week the medicine is caffeine-free Coke, you'll know a couple of things. One, that it uh, it's Lori's. And two, that I'm going after the aluminum poisoning and not the caffeine. Where do you start? That, I know, is an old joke. I use it all the time, but the Internet people have not heard it. So what's your responsibility? To laugh like it's new. So that they'll think what? There's hundreds of us here. We have. We fooled them. Okay. Where do I start on this Hebrew betrothal ceremony? Where's uh, Kathy? Is she nursery too? No, 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 Kathy Floyd. 
Is she in the nursery too? How many babies do we have in the nursery? Hmm? And, and uh, Talia's hiding down there? Okay. Um, I would have no problem if the nursery came up here. How many babies do I have? They're your babies, right? Five of them? Wow. There's only four of us. Huh? Well, I wouldn't have a problem if the babies come up here because this is uh, this is a subject that I think they uh, would want to know, and it's only half of the thing. So tell them to come on up. We will. I will be happy if the babies scream during the sermon. That actually is, keeps the audience awake, and so there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I'll wait. What can we do with the? Uh, I could tell jokes or some kind of dancing routine. I'm no good at either. Yes. Yes, there are more copies of the Hebrew uh, betrothal ceremony steps. Where are they at, Bill? Out on the table. Uh, Go ahead and get those and pass those out to people that don't have them. We're not going to get as far as I would like today on that. um, But uh, next week I'll, I'll get it all. And it's very important that you have it. If you never hear this again... At least you need to know these 12 steps. In fact, give that to me, and I'll read that into the record really quickly, Steve, and so that uh, the people on the Internet. And by the way, so that all of you know, uh, Dave called me the other day to tell me that um, we had one sermon site, um, sermon audio, as a matter of fact, that that just uh, set a record for us in the last month. Okay, well, I'll read this in as those people came up. Number one, bride is selected by the father. And this, of course, as you may know, is where, um, uh, this is an example of this in scripture, is where Abraham selects a, a bride for Isaac and he sends his trusted servant Eliezer out to, a, to find Rebekah and to get her consent and adorn her and bring her to the son Isaac, the promised beloved son that she has never seen. And that is a picture of the church age, as you know. A bride price is established and agreed upon by the father and the son. Now, those are different fathers. The first one is the father of the groom. The second one is the father of the bride. A price is agreed upon. And as you know, the price for the, for the bride of Christ or the price of salvation is his blood sacrifice. The bride and groom are betrothed, are legally bound, not yet married, not allowed to live together, but legally uh, bound as if, and it is a contract, uh, and we'll get to that. A contract is prepared, the contract must be written. Uh, very important. You know what the contract is, don't you? What is our contract between us and Christ? It is Scripture. When Moses came down the mountain at, at uh, Mount Sinai, that was a wedding ceremony uh, between God and Israel, as you also are aware. And he had the contract. Most people think this is the common view, or the, the, the view I think is the most defensible. He had two tablets, didn't he? What's the obvious question? How many commandments were on each tablet? Some people think five and five, but I believe... The correct uh, response is that there were uh, one with ten and the other one with ten. So they were copies, if you will. One was the groom's copy or God's copy. The other was the bride's copy or Israel's copy. Okay? So there is a contract. It's a legal procedure. Uh, It's prepared and it must be written. And that is why we can look at those ten commandments. 
and see that it was written by the finger of God, right? The bride must give her consent. Very important you understand that. The cup is put in front of her, and she takes a drink of the cup. I didn't mean for the, the parents of the babies to stay down there. The parents can come up. It isn't a zero-sum game, you know. I don't want anybody to miss it because, uh, like I said, test is coming in a couple of weeks, and I want somebody to pass it. Okay. The bride must give her consent. Doctrinally, that's, the implications of that is significant. Gifts must be given in a cup shared. Going back to the cup shared, remember, the bridegroom puts the cup on the table, or the potential bridegroom puts the cup in front of the bride, and she gives her consent by doing what? Drinking from it. But notice the consent. And we see that, by the way, in our communion service. Our communion service brings this uh, to the fore. Okay? The bride must be cleansed in a mikvah. In other words, the bride is what? That's right. Bride's dirty. Got to clean her. Before you start pointing at people and laughing, you're in the bride. At least that's the plan. Oh, you have a pinky in the brain t-shirt, and I made a, my pinky joke. All in the same day. We should coordinate more often. That makes sense to no one but me and Travis. Um, this goes to Adam and Eve, by the way. You see that typology? Adam, Eve fell into filth, if you will, fell into sin. She needed to be cleansed. Adam did not, what was the method that would have cleansed her? Blood. He did not cleanse her. He joined her in sin. That is the sin of Adam after, as you know, I think, after a significant amount of uh, reflection and, and thinking about what he would do. A very complex story. The bridegroom departs and prepares a home for the bride. That's John 14, 1, 3. Christ exactly did that. He said, I'm going to go now and prepare the home for you. You are my bride. He says that to the apostles. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. So that is word for word out of this betrothal step process. That is That tells you, by the way, when he says, only the Father knows. It doesn't mean he doesn't know. He does know. He is instead saying to you, we are in the Hebrew betrothal ceremony order or pattern or steps. Okay, and then number nine, the bride is set apart, isolated, if you will. Then the trumpet is blown. The bridegroom returns with a shout. When Christ returns for his bride, what will be shouted by the angels or an angel? We'll hear it. Behold, the bridegroom comes, and blessed is he who comes. Then the bridegroom abducts the bride for a seven. What doctrine is that? That's the doctrine of the rapture or the catching away of the bride or the church. And a marriage supper is then given after that seven. That seven is the length of time of the tribulation. That is not a coincidence, okay? So I wanted you all up here to hear all of this so I didn't have to repeat it for you next week. Marriage is, uh, he's, God has hidden his plan of salvation within this ordinance of marriage, he, in his betrothal ceremony, in his marriage ceremony. Marriage is God-designed, God-given. It originates from God. It is not a product of human thought. Has nothing, humanity has nothing to do with this, never has had, 
And God has given an order or steps, a divine process. And within that process is incredible truths and doctrines and prophecy and time marks. And what I mean by time marks is that within the Hebrew betrothal marriage ceremony is the answer to when. When is Christ coming for His church? When is He coming for the nation of Israel? When is He coming to be king? When is He coming to end sin? When is He coming to end the wicked ones? How is this process being played out? Why is this, this intertestable, I'm sorry, this great parentheses period between the time He left and the time He is coming? We have now almost 2,000 years. How long do the brides wait? For the bridegroom in the days of Christ, as much as two years, usually one year, but as much as two years. So he answers when the, when the apostles and the disciples asked him, when are you coming back? He goes, I go now to prepare a place for you. And they knew immediately, oh, that's the, he's on the Hebrew betrothal pattern. This could be, this could be a thousand years, it could be two thousand years, it could be one year. Then he's going to come and get us, and we're going to be gone for a seven. That could be seven years, seven months, seven days. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is following this betrothal marriage order perfectly, meticulously, step by step. So far, how many has he done? Oh, he's done nine in a row. In perfect order, right on the button, Hasn't missed any, omitted none. Nine for nine. How many are left? Three are left. What are the chances that if he's done the first nine perfectly, the next three aren't also going to be perfect? Mathematically, I can tell you, very little chance. I agree with Edward Chumney and others. You'll see his name down here. Edward Chumney and others who have concluded that there are 12 steps to this pattern. Some say eight. Some combine them. Some say as few as four. Uh, I've seen all kinds of positions. I think 12 is correct. And uh, Edward Chumney did the seven, festival, seven festivals of the Messiah. It's hard to find, uh, but uh, it was the uh, last printing I have of it was 1999. But knowing these 12 steps, in my opinion, is going to help you avoid doctrinal errors. Let me give you some examples. You're going to understand the purpose of the tribulation finally. You're going to understand a bill of divorcement. You understand when the Bible talks about divorce, you need to know what it's talking about. You're going to understand the difference between the church or the bride in Israel. You understand the rapture, because the rapture is right there in in number ten and eleven. If you think there is no rapture. Before the tribulation, you have to deal with number 11. Because he comes and abducts the bride for seven. Also, eternal security is in here, just to name a few. Don't find yourself in conflict with, in conflict with the betrothal marriage pattern. As with the Passover pattern, they are the same. Okay? Find out these patterns that God uses. And if you have a position that doesn't fit in his pattern, then what should you worry about? Whether you're right. Now, here's my question. Do you care? Because some of us love our positions so much, we don't care if they're unbiblical. We want them. They're ours. We've fought for them all our lives. We don't care if they're wrong. We, we want them to be wrong. Makes us feel good. 
Does it matter to you if you're in conflict with Scripture? You should look at your faces. You should film all of you. You all think you have something, and you probably do, just as I do. If somebody came to me and said, old weird person, your position is in conflict with the Passover pattern, I'd go, uh-oh, I got a problem. You have a position that's in conflict with the Hebrew betrothal steps. I go, uh oh. I'm in trouble. Then I'd have to get up here and fix it. Okay, again, where do we start? Probably with an incomplete list of what, at minimum, needs to be accumulated and studied. Okay? We'll just make our little list here that we'll go through next week. I'm going to do one thing today for you to show you just how powerful this is. As with the feast days, so it is the case with the Hebrew betrothal marriage ceremony order. God's perfect designs have been modified. In other words, what was true at the time of Christ is not true today. If you went to today, you will see them break a glass, for example. And stomp on it with the right foot and things like that. That is an addition. That, by the way, they're doing that to remember something. What are they doing to remember? The destruction of the temple is the number one position. Okay? That was not part of that, this order when it was given in Scripture. And it's all over the Bible. You have to find it and pick it out. So as the case with the feast days, we've added, we've changed the names of the feast days and added feast days. Not us, but the nation of Israel has. And they are not uh, what God has put there. How many feast days does God have? He has seven of them. And his names are very important. He does not have Hanukkah. He doesn't. He doesn't have Purim. Not one of his feast days. He doesn't have Christmas. He doesn't have Ishtar. So if you have a feast day that God doesn't have... I tell you, oops, what do you got to do? I know you love your Ishtar. I know. We all love Ishtar. Merry Ishtar. Easter, for those of you on the Internet. We all love that. We have our Ishtar egg hunts. Pure Babylonian fertility stuff. That's what it is. I know that's what it is. You know what the, that's what it is. And I know there's churches all over this city, all over this country. If I told them that that is a Babylonian Ishtar worship fertility thing where only the girls are supposed to get the Easter eggs. If I told them that, what would they tell me? We don't care. We love our Ishtar. We love our Ishtar egg hunts and our bunny rabbit fertility. We love it. We love our bunny rabbit greeting people. We love Santa Claus at the door on the Christmas Eve service. We're not changing it. We don't care. That's cool. Good luck with that. As with the feast days, so it is with the Hebrew betrothal. It has been modified, and now traditions are over the top of. Man's traditions are now more valuable to man than what God had put in Scripture. That's the case. There are some biblical marriages and betrothals that are essential to study. Okay, obviously, number one is Adam and Eve, right? 
Got to study Adam and Eve and know exactly what happened there. Don't have some silly idea that Adam was deceived. He was not deceived. See 1 Timothy. Okay, understand what's going on between the two trees. You have to know there's two decisions there. In the two trees, after one tree was taken, the other tree was not taken from. You must know that in order to solve Adam and Eve. Okay? Uh, we have then Jacob, and I'm not in order here. I've got Jacob, and I've got Leah, and I've got Rachel. Right? Or actually, yeah, that's the correct order. I have that going on. Got to understand what happened between Jacob and Leah primarily. Uh, Judah and Tamar. We got guys dying all over the place because of betrothal. And Judah and Tamar. Isaac and Rebekah. That's the one I alluded to earlier just a few minutes ago. Because that is a profound picture of Christ in the church. So is Adam and Eve, by the way. Moses and Keturah. You know that's from the circumcision. Oops, make a six. David and Bathsheba. Things that we have covered a lot. Bathsheba gives birth to two sons, doesn't she? The child that is born and the child that is that the government is upon his shoulder. That's Isaiah 9. She is one of the most honored women in all of Scripture. She gives you two sons that are portraits of Christ. The child born who dies in the place of David and the child who rises to governmental authority. Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Right? So do not have a position that says Bathsheba is evil. It's indefensible. Ruth and Boaz, the Redeemer. Hosea and Gomer. Hosea chases Gomer down, who is in adultery, right? Hosea means Yeshua, just like Joshua means Yeshua, just like Jesus means Yeshua. It is the same picture, same name. Jephthah's daughter. Jephthah... It's hard to spell because there are three H's. Always look for three H's. Jephthah's daughter, very important to understand, as is Samson and the Philistine wife and Samson and Delilah. Samson, by the way, is one of the seven miraculous births in Scripture. Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and... uh, Hagar, what did I say? I said Keturah with Moses, didn't I? What did I really mean? Zipporah. How come nobody corrected me? Oh, good for you. Moses and Zipporah, the husband of blood. Abraham, Sarah, and now Keturah. Isn't it good that I can remember at least 20 minutes ago? Worrisome, but and then finally, of course, the miraculous one that the other six point to, Joseph and Mary, that betrothal as well. So those twelve betrothals or marriages have to be dealt with in order to understand it. That's where you pick it all out of. Now, quickly, I'll just go through the others. The C, that's A and B. C would be the laws of adultery. Why do we have to study the laws of adultery? Because adultery is punishable by what in Scripture? Death. 
Why is adultery punished by death? We especially have to get to the death penalty provision. Israel, the wife of Jehovah, that is what she is called. The nation of Israel is called the wife of Jehovah. We had a marriage. We had marriage contracts. That's in Deuteronomy. We had the adultery. That's in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. Why we study Hosea and Gomer. We have the separation. That's Isaiah 50 and 11 because God finally separates from Israel. And then we have the bill of divorcement. There is a divorcement that's in Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10. So I have a marriage contract. I have adultery that breaks it. I have the separation. And then the bill of divorcement is filed by God. Then I have the punishment. Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2. And then the remarriage, or the new covenant, or the new contract, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. In contrast to that, or distinct from that, from Israel, is the church, or the bride, the betrothed of the, of the Messiah, or the bride of Christ. There I have a betrothal, I have a cleansing or a sanctification, I have the marriage, and then the eternal home. And knowing the distinctions between the wife of Jehovah and the bride of Christ is absolutely necessary to sound understanding of Scripture. They're not the same. They're different. They're distinct. Blending those two together is going to lead to error, doctrinally. Next, after that, we have to do the divorcement process. Whenever you read divorce in the Bible, what should you think? You've got to ask yourself, does this have something to do with God and Israel, or is it all about me? What do you think the chances that the Bible is always about you, or me, or us? Now, it's applicable. If you start making yourself the center of things, you in big wampum trouble. This is not about you. This is about the glory of God. We are saved as a consequence of the glory of God. Not consequence so much as a result. Then the marriage contract. Next we have to study, uh, this would be H. F would be the divorcement. G would be the marriage contract. H would be the water into wine wedding that Christ uh, began his ministry at. Then the parable of the oil lamps because they have ten virgins that are part of this uh, marriage ceremony. I have the husband of blood that, uh, that is one of the titles of Christ that comes out of Moses and Zipporah. And then I have the parable of the wedding, marriage feast. And obviously all of this is going to take a few Sundays. So for today, let me just establish a couple of things. Something you need to know about the marriage process. Number one, only, only the husband can file a divorce paper. Only the husband is allowed to file, only the husband is allowed to obtain or secure the bill of divorcement. Only the husband. The wife, the bride, cannot file divorce. And by the way, if a husband is, is missing, can't be found, the wife is in a, what's called a stuck position. And I don't know if you know this, but during 9-11, many Jewish people, men, died in that. And they knew they were dying. And they knew that they had to get, they started faxing things so that their wives would not be in a position where they were stuck if they were missing. The forethought in that was extraordinary. 
Only the husband is allowed to file, obtain, because they didn't want their wives to go home, be alone. So they released them, knowing they were about to die. Only the husband is allowed to file or obtain the bill of divorcement. The wife, the bride, cannot. Cannot. What is the implications of that? Who are we? We are the bride. What can we not do? We cannot break the marriage contract. Can't break it. Sorry. Not really. I'm not really sorry. Fake sorry. I want you to immediately consider the doctrinal implications of that provision that is in the Hebrew marriage contract betrothal steps. God, Jesus Christ, is the husband of blood. We are the bride. Only God, only Jesus Christ can nullify the contract. We cannot nullify the contract. That is Jewish law, and Christ promises that he will not nullify the contract, ever. John 10, 28, 30. That's just one piece of this. If you have a doctrine that is in conflict with that peace, if you think as a member of the bride or as the bride that you can nullify the contract, you cannot. You're in conflict. What must you do? That's up to you. You can be mad at me. That's why I get the big money. God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. He says so. What's he talking about? Is he talking about you? Talking about me? Talking about us? Who's he talking about? Israel. Very good. If you think he's talking about you, oops. Bridegroom Jesus Christ right now is making preparations to return for his bride. She is what? She's at her bath. Now where is she? She's in her room, alone, waiting. Anxiously waiting. She knows when he's about to come. How does she know? She's got Jephthah's daughter out there. She knows what the time mark is, doesn't know the day, doesn't know the hour, knows he's about to come. And she knows he's going to fulfill his betrothal obligations. And so now what you have to know is that I have a consummated marriage, that is Israel and God, the wife of YHVH or the wife of Jehovah, versus a betrothal, that is the bride of Christ, that is us. Next week, we will take another run at it. Rise and be dismissed.